In this episode of Real World Serverless, I spoke with Daniel Bass, who works as a senior developer at M&G Investments, a large financial institution with nearly 10,000 employees. And we spoke about their journey to serverless with Azure and Azure Functions and what they have learned over the last three years, including security and some of the pain points that exist with serverless development today. Hi, welcome back to another episode of Real World Serverless, a podcast where I speak with real-world practitioners and get their stories from the trenches. Today, I'm joined by Daniel Bass from MNG. Hi, Daniel. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Very glad to be here. So let's start by talking about your background and uh, what does MNG do and how do you guys came to using serverless? Sure. So... M&G is a savings and investments company. So essentially what our company does is helps people save or invest money to achieve like financial goals. So that could be retiring or, you know, uh, sending a, a child to university. To do that, obviously, we have like a very high security requirement around our technology because there's a lot of money moving around. And I'm a developer within the private credit section of the business. And what they do is find small companies who want to borrow money and uh, investors who want to get a good return. And essentially, we build products that fit for the investors. Okay, that's quite interesting because as a financial company, as a financial enterprise, you guys are not known for risk-taking. And especially with all these security requirements, uh, did you have a hard time selling serverless to the higher management so that they let you use serverless technologies running fully on the cloud? Yeah, so um, we started our journey about three years ago, and there was definitely an education piece when we first started. But uh, one of the great things, particularly around security for serverless, is the story is actually pretty good, particularly compared to rolling your own solution. Because the runtime's managed and basically all of the risk and attack surfaces with the cloud provider, that was quite a potent message for us to sell, you know, saying, well, rather than us do it, we'll let the people who, you know, have a massive cloud security team who really know their stuff do it instead. But there was certainly some pushback in terms of it being a new way of architecting things as well. I think that's where combining serverless components with PaaS components has really sort of helped us because PaaS, uh, PaaS components operate more like your conventional applications. So that sort of allows us to take the best of both, you know, what suits us best. So with a lot of the security teams that I interacted with in the past, one of the sort of stumbling blocks when it comes to thinking about serverless and deciding whether or not serverless is a good fit for the company from a security point of view has been that, well, they just don't know how to reason about the security implications. And also, I guess it's that uncertainty around how do we manage security going forward in this new world where we have no control on the infrastructure do you remember some of the conversation that you had to have with your security team in order to convey some of the messages that you had and also make them feel confident about the security going forward? Yeah, so I think um, our security teams are very open, which is good to 
to sort of new ideas and things like that. Some of the issues have definitely been around networking. I think that's a particular common one and a particular stumbling block with serverless. You know, I think AWS and Microsoft are only just recently really have sorted out using serverless within private networks. So the conversation I sort of had was around basically rephrasing the question. So usually when engaging with security, obviously what they want to do, their interest, and it's an interest I share as well, is they want to stop people hacking into whatever we're building and publishing it on Twitter or whatever. So they want to minimize that attack surface. And one of the ways they're used to doing that is by locking down networking. I always try to flip the conversation and say, rather than relying on networking, why don't we make every single component of the network hardened? There was a Google paper on it a while ago, Zero Trust Networking, how they ditched the traditional VPN and instead made every component within their network an auth, you know, controlled component that could withstand attack on its own. And I found that sort of by rephrasing the approach and instead saying, right, I want this thing, this app on its own to just be able to authenticate its own users. I want it to have its own, you know, services in terms of DDoS protection, etc. I found that was definitely a good way to show both there's a different way of doing things and also that I'm actually, I'm not just a developer trying to get away with it and get into production as quickly as possible. We've actually thought about the security issues with what we're doing. Yeah, I'm so happy that you mentioned the zero trust networking. Uh, it's one of the things that, that just makes so much more sense when you think about it. But it's such a challenge to communicate that to many of the traditional security teams who are just so used to doing things in a particular way. And I'm really glad that you guys have much better luck with your security team to be able to convince them that this is a way forward and zero trust network is much better, much safer compared to just hiding behind your VPN or your VPCs. And you can still get compromised from within if your application is compromised through your dependencies and whatnot. So just because you're hiding behind the network, a firewall, it doesn't mean that you're actually totally protected from external actors. So your guys are running on Azure and they're running using Azure functions heavily in your stack. So you say when your journey started three years ago, was that when you first went into Azure or were you guys running other stuff on Azure already? Um, so that was, our, that was the start of our journey into Azure. In fact, we started off with uh, well, what's now a Google Cloud product called uh, Apogee. We started a, an internal RESTER API push, trying to make sure all of our systems were available as, as internal APIs, um, which has really paid dividends. But then that was sort of our first taste of cloud. And then we moved on to Microsoft Azure and started to basically work out and learn as, as we went on what's the most appropriate architectures, you know, all of that sort of stuff. So nowadays, uh, your serverless stack uh, involves a lot of Azure functions. What are some of the workloads that you're doing on that? Uh, sounds like you guys are doing a lot of API stuff. Uh, what about any sort of big data processing, any machine learning stuff? Yeah, so there's a lot of REST API things. There's, there's also some stuff that it's, it's always difficult to know the definition of big data these days, isn't it? But being a financial company, some of the elements that are in Azure functions would count as big data elsewhere, but we probably don't think of them as such. So there's a lot of Azure functions which basically have some paralyzed workload put onto them, but that might not be megabytes and megabytes. It might just be very complex calculations. In terms of other types of workloads like machine learning and big data processing proper, we tend to use Azure Databricks for that, sort of our preferred platform there. 
although I have been doing some experiments with Python as your functions to sort of, you know, see whether for the smaller, for where Spark is too, a bit too heavyweight, but as normal as your functions aren't quite good enough. There's as your durable functions, which sort of sit in the middle. And I've, uh, I've been sort of playing with that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's mostly REST APIs, timers, queues, that sort of stuff. And for the listeners who are not familiar with Azure and the difference between normal Azure functions and Azure durable functions, can you just maybe explain to us you know, what are durable functions and why are they better and how are you using it in this case? Yeah, so durable functions I find really interesting. They're um, basically an approach to stateful serverless, which I believe is similar in concept to the AWS step function. And what they effectively do is the main thing that a durable function introduces that's fundamentally different is the, the orchestrator function, which is basically a single stateful Azure function, which can call out to normal Azure functions to do work. And uh, where that's really helpful is in a normal serverless architecture, there's a lot of talk around doing event-based processing, which is, which is great. But inherently, as part of that, what most people start to do is use choreography rather than orchestration as a solution to the events model. So in choreography, you effectively put a function here, put a message onto a queue, and then you know another function picks it up. And basically, each individual component, as a result of its local action, gives rise to a global workflow. And where that can get tricky is if there's an error or something and you want to roll back, that can get quite hard. And if there's bugs, it can get quite hard to understand what state the workflow is in. So what durable functions do is they introduce an orchestrator function. And under the hood, that uses all the same queues and stuff that you would set up yourself. But instead, it's a single function in code. And you can debug it using normal development tools, VS Code, Visual Studio, whatever. But you still get all the scaling benefits and of being distributed. Right now, are you guys a traditional .NET house? Do you write most of your functions in Node or do you write them in C Sharp? Yeah, so we had a strong .NET background, but also a Java background. So there's sort of two strong language uh, backgrounds in MNG. We, I'd say most of our functions are written in C Sharp. My team personally at the moment is using uh, TypeScript mostly, Node.js. And that's because we're doing a lot of work with uh, Slack, which has a very well supported you know, Node.js uh, SDK and framework. So our sort of local team's approach is, you know, choose the best language for the job. As a broad rule, I'd say it's C Sharp and Java. Okay. So on AWS, one of the sort of common complaints about uh, using languages like C Sharp and Java is that your code start is just going to be so much worse. And this, of course, make it a bit difficult for you to use those languages on APIs where you're more concerned about user-facing latency. From the numbers I've seen, Azure has even less predictable cold start latency compared to AWS Lambda. So how are you guys dealing with that cold start issue when it comes to functions that are written in C Sharp and Java? Yeah, so there's been a lot of good work from Azure Functions in terms of improving that. It's definitely got a lot more reliable I think we could almost do with rerunning. I, I don't know if they've got internal benchmarks or whatever, but some of the ones that I see around don't reflect what I see in the wild from our production logs, for example. But at the same time, 
inevitably you're loading a virtual machine, you know, the uh, the CLR. So it's always going to be a, a bit slower than an interpreted language like Python or JavaScript. So we have a range of approaches. Sometimes it doesn't matter that much. If it's user-facing, then obviously it does matter more. But quite a lot of our APIs aren't, so we, we can just leave them. The other approaches that we have, because Azure Functions the way they're deployed is slightly different to AWS Lambda. So uh, they tend to share, they share a function app underneath. So you'd deploy multiple functions to the same scaling unit. That's very useful because you can basically, say if you've got a, a whole bunch of Azure functions you want to deploy, and you've got a queue that you know is going to be going off all the time. If you just attach your HTTP trigger, you know, your, your REST API function to that function app that that queue is running on, then it's always going to be warm. So that, that helps too, but mostly what we do is make use of premium functions, which is a little bit like reserve concurrency. So in AWS Lambda, as far as I'm aware, so basically you always have an instance running or we're deployed to Azure App Services, which is the, the PaaS instance, which is a similar sort of thing. So yeah, it's sort of a, a range of approaches that we use and it, it depends on the teams how comfortable they are with serverless as well, because we're, we're quite a big organization. So the maturity varies from team to team. Right, right, gotcha. So with the premium functions, that's the thing that you launched last year, if I remember correctly, uh, where you pay for having a certain number of containers always running so that you switch your payment model so that you are also paying for uptime as well as the invocations. Funny you mentioned that the wording there was reserve concurrency. So Lambda actually had this thing called reserve concurrency, which is something different. <laughs> the sort of similar feature to premium functions is called provision concurrency. A lot of people got confused that when they think reserve concurrency, they think, oh, that's the number of concurrent containers that are always reserved and always available. But it wasn't how that thing worked at all. But because the naming was bad, so a lot of people got that confusion. And then last reinvent, they announced provision concurrency, which is equivalent to saying, I want to keep a certain number of containers always warm so that I don't see any cold starts. Yeah, naming is hard. <laughs> so you guys are three years into your journey into serverless. What are you seeing as some of the benefits that the serverless has given you as a company? Do you find that the teams that are doing serverless are just moving a lot faster? Are they seeing less outages in production? Yeah, I, d I definitely say that teams that are making heavy use of serverless will tend to be, I mean, it's always a difficult thing to sort of evaluate with any software team, right? But I'd say they tend to be moving quicker and tend to have happier customers. Being a big company, we, we have a mix of customers being actual customers, you know, people giving us money, but also our internal customers. Yeah, I'd say there's definitely a benefit there. There's also the benefit in terms of like lack of outages, etc. So I'd say serverless systems are definitely a lot more resilient. We have a lot less, you know, and part of this comes from the fact that at the same time we moved over to infrastructure as code and fully automated deployment pipelines, etc. But in general, we're requiring a lot less maintenance in production. You know, there's less that needs, you basically deploy your function as long as it's not switched off for some reason, it will work. We also use PaaS services a lot, so there's your app service, and that's that has a similar, it definitely has a few more issues than serverless, but it does, that's also contributed a lot to sort of increasing velocity and reducing outages. 
So you mentioned the infrastructure's code there. Um, on AWS, uh, we'll be using CloudFormation or using some other sort of third-party tools such as the service framework. What do you guys use at MNG? So the recommended tool, and it's, it's the one that we use, is, is something called a ARM template. So that would be roughly analogous to your CloudFormation in that it's built there, there, it's a Microsoft product. It's first-class support from Microsoft. They're built in JSON. Um, I'm not a great lover of them, to be honest. Um, but yeah, it's your classic sort of stateful, declare what resources you want, pass in some variables, and uh, Azure goes off and creates those resources in the state that you want them for. And for the CI/CD side of things, uh, are you using Azure DevOps, which I've heard quite a lot of good things about? Mm. Yeah, so we, we make heavy use of Azure DevOps. It's really, um, we used to use Jenkins and when we moved to the cloud, we switched over to using Azure DevOps for pretty much everything, except for issue tracking, we still use Jira for that. And um, yeah, Azure DevOps really is very good. Uh, the, the particular benefit that I find with it, particularly with junior developers on my team, is that previously people would fear, you know, the PowerShell scripts or whatever uh, scripts that ran on the build server. And it definitely took a long time to sort of get people comfortable with actually editing a release. It was sort of treated as something that you learned when you got more senior, if you like. Whereas with Azure DevOps, the barrier to entry is just so much lower. You know, you, you can get people productive with it very, very quickly. And it's, yeah, it, it really is very good. The only trick that I do have with it is obviously because you're moving away from having scripts checked into your repo, although we will still do that, some degree of your release pipeline will live in as your DevOps only, which can make creating local integration tests, et cetera, a little bit more challenging. But yeah, in, in general, it's it's really is an excellent tool. And I'd, I'd say it's a major part of why MNG's like automated, you know, CICD sort of pipeline stuff has progressed so far is that tool. So you mentioned the testing there. How do you guys go about testing your application? With Lambda, the approach I normally take is I will invoke my function locally and talk to the real AWS services to make sure that the integration to say DynamoDB and other services are working correctly. So I get some confidence before I deploy and then test the whole thing end to end by hitting the HTTP endpoints. I'm not sure what sort of things you could do with Azure Functions. Are there other tools that allow you to simulate things easier locally? Like you said, it's harder to run integration tests for your functions. So what is your approach there? Yeah, so Azure Functions um, run locally, in fact, with the exact same runtime that they run in production, which is pretty helpful. So uh, when we do integration tests, uh, it'll be a mix. So some of them will run locally, that's pretty helpful when connecting up to real Azure services. I'm not generally a fan of mocking cloud services other than when they do silly things. But yeah, we'll tend to connect up to, to remote services. But then what we'll also do is there's usually a step in our release pipeline, which is a full environment that we spin up in the cloud. And then we'll just run a whole bunch of tests on that. And they'll tend to be end-to-end -end tests, you know, controlled by Selenium or something similar. We find that's definitely a lot more of a reliable way of doing what you want to do, which is preventing user-facing bugs. 
So when you say your CI/CD pipeline spins up a new environment, does that mean that every time you run your CI deployment pipeline, you run your integration test, probably running locally, and then the, you bring up a new environment in Azure to run the end-to-end -end test, and then afterwards you tear down the environment? Um, yeah. So what we'll do, it sort of depends sometimes how long those tests take, because obviously some of them, particularly end-to-end -end ones where you're spinning up an entire environment and then tearing it down, can take quite a while. So integration tests, which are just depending on cloud resources, you know, maybe a storage account, roughly analogous to AWS S3, but with a few other extras on it, we might keep one of those just deployed all the time. And then those integration tests will run on them every single build because they can run very quickly. But things like full end-to-end -end tests, yeah, there'll be a step in our pipeline, which deploys the entire environment, spins it up, runs the tests, and then... Uh, spins it down again afterwards. That obviously depends on the scale of the project. You know, big projects will do that far more. Small projects, sometimes it's not it's not necessarily worth the outlay and effort up front. It's yeah, case by case, I guess. So one of the things I found uh, when I saw experimenting with Azure Function before was that, and this was one of the pain points that I came across pretty quickly, was that there's nothing similar to the sort of IAM permissions model that you have for Lambda, where you can specify what every function can access through the IAM permissioning model. And with Azure Functions, if I remember correctly, you have to do a lot of work yourself from the function to authenticate against, I think, uh, Azure AD. And then from there, you can control what that particular function can access. Is that still the case? Yeah, I'd definitely say it's a place that uh, Microsoft are working on. It's definitely the harder part of using, and it's not just as your functions, I'd say it's sort of a, a, across the platform, but they have introduced uh, managed service identities, which has made that significantly easier. So that's where basically whenever you deploy a function, it auto creates an Azure Active Directory app and that lives with the life cycle of your, your function or your app service or whatever it is that you're using. And then you can grant that permissions in a similar way to you would on AWS to, for example, key vaults. That's quite a common thing that we'll do. So we'll stick, you know, keys to get into services or, you know, whatever in these key vaults and then give permission using the managed service identity into those key vaults. We've also got a internal piece of software which basically manage the helps us manage the lifecycle of our Active Directory service principles, which are you know app identifiers basically, and also will rotate keys for us on a regular basis. So if we want to access another resource, we'll basically set up a job with this service, which will rotate that resources keys through the key vault. And then we just give the managed service identity access to the key vault. And that, that works quite nicely. I'm sort of looking forward to over time, those managed service identities becoming available on absolutely everything and being, you know, fully first class. But yeah, it's definitely a more difficult point at the moment. Okay, that's, that's good to know. Uh, at least they're working on something, they're improving things uh, gradually. What about, are there any other sort of platform limits or lack of tooling that you find are making it difficult for you to work with your functions on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, it's, it's tricky. I'd say there's definitely issues around ARM templates. It's not Azure Functions directly, but it sort of contributes to it because you basically need to use them. Obviously you have to, but it'd be very inadvisable not to use infrastructure as code with serverless. And they are very tricky and unfriendly. 
and they could definitely do with some some better tooling, which I know work is being done on, but it's, yeah, that's a particular source of pain. In terms of Azure Functions itself, there's probably some issues around version management. So we're on version three now, porting over from version two, and um, that sort of journey has been a bit mixed with us customers realizing that version two was built on a version of .NET that was going to go out of date, going to go end of life with only a, a few months notice. Now, obviously Microsoft immediately said, right, we'll support it beyond end of life and it'll be fine. I think things like that though can be a bit challenging. The other side is the Linux support. So Azure Functions sort of started on Windows and has Linux now is fully supported, but it's definitely the experience is a lot better on Windows than it is on Linux still, I'd say. And languages like Python are only available on Linux. So you sort of have to write that if you want to use those languages. So yeah, I think things like that, feature parity as well. There's some issues around features. Will, all features will be available on C-sharp Windows. It can sometimes be hard to tell which features are available on the, you know, for example, Linux, Python you know, which, which of those Azure function features are available. Those would be the main things. Generally tooling like itself for developing is very good. Okay. And uh, one of the, so I guess one of the things I found when I played around with Azure function before was that, well, well with Azure in general is that a lot of the toolings all tied to Visual Studio. So if you're using Visual Studio, everything looks great. But if you're not, there's a clear absence of uh, support for CLI tools and other things like that. Has that been improved now? Or is this still very much uh, you have to do a lot of the things uh, through Visual Studio? So I'd say I actually prefer developing Azure Functions in VS Code. The support has yeah changed drastically. Whilst Visual Studio support is still obviously very good, and given that it's Microsoft's sort of premier code editor, there's benefits there. But I wouldn't say there's a meaningful difference between the two now. The Azure Functions extension to VS Code is absolutely excellent. You can do everything you can do in full Visual Studio, and then I can do that on Linux, on my MacBook. The whole Azure Functions platform is now fully cross-platform. So uh, they'll work on your Mac, on Ubuntu, whatever. So I'd, I'd definitely say Azure Functions aren't tied to Visual Studio, which is good. All right, that's uh, good to know. And uh, thank you very much, Daniel, for joining us today. Before we go, is there anything else that uh, you'd like to tell us about MNG? Maybe you guys are hiring, maybe you have some interesting projects and stuff coming up? Yeah, so we are hiring. If you'd like to uh, search for MNG careers in the search engine of your choice, then we're hiring mostly in our Edinburgh office at the moment. Yeah, please do get on and, and apply. Okay, I will put the job links in the description below. And what about you personally? Is there anything else that you are doing currently? And how do people find you on the internet? Yeah, so I've just sort of uh, rebuilt my blog and I've got a few bits and pieces coming along. I want to do some work around uh, globally deployed Azure functions. So rather than deploying to a single region, um, deploying to the entire Azure cloud in one go. So that's that's work in progress at the moment. Hopefully I'll, I'll get that sorted and come out with that soon. And I was hoping to speak at some events, but obviously given recent global uh, global events, uh, it doesn't look like that's happening until, until September. 
<laughs> yeah, all the events that I'm supposed to be speaking at for the next couple of months are can- cancelled as well, or they've gone virtual. So maybe that's where we're going to find you on some of these virtual conferences. So again, thank you very much, Dan. I'm going to make sure that your blog and your Twitter handle are available on the show notes so that people can find you and go read about your brand new blog. No, stay safe and uh, I hope to see you again sometime, uh, either virtually or in person. Yeah, well, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it's been good. Take care. Bye-bye. So that's it for another episode of Real World Serverless. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Daniel Bass from MNG Investments. To access the show notes and transcriptions, please go to realworldserverless.com and I'll see you guys at the same time next week. Take care.